Welcome back to Let's Talk About God. Glad to be back. Glad to be back. Glad to be talking about God. Anytime Honestly. we can talk about the Lord, that's always good. Yeah. I'm we have fun with these episodes. We, we, we have a good time. They really are like a whole lot of fun. I look forward to them. Look forward to them every week, even though my brain gets just melted. Well, every and time I do these, we do. And I mean, we have fun. And I, you know, for our listeners who, if you're keeping up with our podcast, um, the last podcast, we had a great episode with Dr. Stamps, yes. your former professor at Anderson University, and kind of went deep and oh, yeah. um, talking about. The, the church traditions and the early church fathers and the creeds and, you know, things that maybe a lot of our listeners mm-hmm. don't listen to or know much about. But, I mean, these this is part of our heritage. If you're in the church, the church, that's part of your heritage. If you haven't listened to it yet, it's a bit on the longer side, not that much longer than we usually do. Go give it a listen, even if you got to break it up. It's worth the listen. It's worth it just because we go into some really good stuff, deep stuff, and I yeah. think things are great. But today— You want to be careful if you're driving right now. Don't pick up your phone and change it to that episode because you might be breaking the law. There's your segue. You did it. <laughs> he did it again, folks. I was looking for a way. I knew. He, I did not have it ready, and it just presented well, itself to me. Ladies and gentlemen, I think he stays up the night before we record and just lays there in bed trying to think of some creative way to segue from our it's all I banter, from our banter to go into the subject. It's all I care about. Breaking the law, you know, I On the theme of breaking breaking the law, today's topic is all about the doctrine of sin. Yeah. So we're ready to go, which oh. I'm excited about. So I think you just missed the mark. <laughs> That's what I think. Before we get into it or anything, we do want to let you know um, we're actually going to make this a two-parter. This is such a massive doctrine. So between covering all of kind of the biblical theology, meaning looking at the Old and the New Testament and seeing how they relate, and then talking about some of the um, doctrines that come with it, like the doctrine of original sin and some of the false teachings that are based around that in history, basically what I'm trying to say is there's a lot to it. And so rather than talking for two hours today, we're just going to go ahead and break it up. That way um, it's easier for you to listen. And so Today, you're going to be listening to part one on the doctrine of sin. So, with that being said, give me your 30-second definition. What is sin? Okay, so a couple things. Um, Any lack of conformity, active or passive, to the moral law of God. That's good. So, any lack of conformity, whether that's actively or passively, to the moral law of God. And I'm going to add, this may be a matter of act, thought, or your inner disposition. So mm-hmm. it can be, you can sin with your actions, you can sin with your thoughts, you can sin just your state of mind or your state, your disposition with Being in a state of sin. Yeah. And another definition, I actually have two today. Oh, cool. Is that okay? Yeah, go So for it. any evil action or motive that is in opposition to God mm-hmm. or the failure to let God be God and placing something or someone else in his place. That's good. I like that. Well, let's I break it down. Let's break it down. Was that more than 30 seconds? No, I don't even know. Okay. That's You're, just a title. It you don't have my mean, stopwatch. You don't have your stopwatch. It anything. Okay. You know? so, so what's your 30-second definition of sin? So uh, I said that sin is both the state of being born without the fear of God 
without trust in God and the inclination to sin, and it's also an act of willful disobedience before God. Basically what you said, I think I ripped this out of the Book of Concord, I'm not sure, basically being in a state of sin and then committing actual sins. Okay, there you go. All right, so first let's begin by looking at the fall. So we are going to look at when sin entered the world, we're going to look at the Old Testament and what it presents to us of sin, and then we're going to conclude with looking at some New Testament texts regarding sin. But we've got to start with where it all happened, which is called the fall. So we know God made everything good. Um, it's important to note sin's not an eternal existing force. So what we mean is, um, you know how oftentimes you'll see like yin and yang, that there's like 50% good and there, there's like a 50% bad power and they've always been at war. That's nonsense. It's not biblical. It's not biblical Not at all. At all. We don't believe in no. those two things. So evil is not like, it hasn't always been around. Sin hasn't always been around. When God is eternally good and he made everything good, sin had to enter the world. And so it was brought on by Satan first, who introduced it to humanity, and then humanity got on board and introduced it to the rest of the world and creation. So at the fall, Adam and Eve were told they could do anything but eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Humans were designed to be ignorant of evil, not knowledgeable about evil. They didn't need to have that information, did not concern them They should just continue living in obedience to God. Well, and I would say they didn't need an external source uh, or a world, let me say this, a worldly source to determine Mm -hmm. good and evil. They already had a source. His name was God. Mm -hmm. It was written on their hearts. And they had God, and and God had told them, do not eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He gave them the commands. Yeah, they don't need it in them. Morality, yeah, morality yeah. Can't, comes from God. That's and right. when you have an earth, he gave them an earthly source and said, do you want to pick an earthly source to determine your moral standard? Yep. Or do you want to let me determine mm-hmm. your moral standard? That's good. And that issue is still at work in the world today, that mm-hmm. when you're redeemed and born again, you look to God and his word as the source for your moral compass. Mm-hmm and your standard of living. But when you are in sin, then we get into moral relativism, and I'll create my own standard. Mm-hmm. But that's, I know what's right. I know what's right, and then that'll separate you from God. That's good. Um, at the fall, sin was entered. So basically, Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree because the fruit looked pleasurable to the eyes. This was a pleasure thing, a sensory thing. It looked good. And at the same time, they were promised to be like God or to be gods, to be basically independent. So the scriptures tell us that it looked pleasurable to the eyes. And it tells us that Satan told Eve, God doesn't want you to eat of it because he knows that the day you eat of the fruit, you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And they were already like him. Exactly. It was the lie of the devil. They were made in the image of God. Yep. And the lie of the devil was that they could actually be their own gods. The idea that they could be independent of God and his life, his righteousness, his provision, that they could go off and be their own people and do their own thing, what it ended in is death. Which is what Satan wanted to do exactly. in heaven. So he just pulled the same scam on them mm-hmm. that failed miserably for him. It failed miserably for Adam and Eve. Which reveals really the depth of Satan's sin. We had done nothing to him, and he just hated us. 
just because he's that evil. Yeah, because we reminded him of God. Exactly. And we see in kind of the most simple way, sin is simply disobedience. It's going against the will of God. God says, do not eat. And Adam and Eve look at God and say, I'll do what I want. I'm going to disobey, and they eat. It is the willful rebellion against the will and the standard of God. And that that is, you know, as we talked about earlier, just kind of the most basic definition of what sin is. Mm -hmm. So do you have any more, anything else to add regarding the fall, what we see in Genesis 3 about what sin is? No, I I think you've, I think you've covered it. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's exactly like you Mm -hmm. stated. I mean, they just, they were given a command and they simply rebelled and disobeyed. Mm -hmm. Well, then let's look at the consequences of sin. So we see what sin is, but what does sin bring about as we see it in Genesis 3? Well, we see one that Satan is cursed to go on his belly and to be conquered by the seed of the woman. So we'll start with some good news, that because Satan brought sin into our world, he's eventually going to be crushed and defeated one day. Praise God. Yes. So that's some good news. Good news. But let's look at some bad news. Eve is cursed to bear children in pain. And Adam is cursed to difficult work, and the entire creation is going to be going against him instead of working with him. And finally, Death, actually, no, not even final. Let's just stop there um, before we before we move on. We see that sin actually begins to like frustrate the purposes of humanity. So, like, woman was placed here to be a partner to Adam and to reproduce humanity to be fruitful and multiply. And now, because of sin, her God given purpose is not deleted, but it's frustrated because she departed from God. And in the same way, you know, Adam being the leader of the family, God told humanity um, to work the ground and to take dominion over the earth. And now as he's trying to take dominion over the earth and be fruitful on the earth and plant things and grow things and build cities, he's going to do it, but he's going to do it in frustration. That humanity's purposes are very, very frustrated because of sin entering the world. That's what sin does. It mars the image of God, and it and it frustrates the the will of God and the work of God for That's us. Right. Now we know, and this is kind of the, the 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 biggie here. Death enters the world through sin for all of human beings. That God says, "From dust you are formed, and from dust you shall return." And I see this as um, as we look at that independence that Adam and Eve separated themselves from the one who is life. They said, we want to be our own gods, but we're not self-existent. We were created by somebody, and therefore we have to be sustained by somebody. Mm -hmm. And the moment they walked away was the moment they were consigned to return to dust because we just simply can't exist on our own. We need God to be for us. Well, and death has three aspects to it in the Bible. Um, If you remember the story... God said, in the day that you eat of that tree, you shall surely die. Mm -hmm. Well, they ate the fruit and they didn't die right then. Physically, yeah. So there was more to it. Mm -hmm. They did die, but they didn't die physically. Uh, Death is the ultimate separation. Mm -hmm. Once you're dead, you're separated from all relationships. So they died spiritually. So there was a spiritual, so whatever spiritual connection they had with God that died. Mm-hmm. They were separated from it. Thus why God kicked them out of the garden and put an angel there with a flaming sword so they couldn't come back. 
and it showed how the finality of sin, that there's no way we can work our way back to God. Yep. Isn't that neat? And and uh, that the, we're under the judgment of God. There, if you come close, the sword, the angel will kill you. So there was there was spiritual separation. Eventually, there was physical death. So then there was the physical separation from this earth and your relationship with God as a living being. And then because of the spiritual separation and then ultimately the physical separation, there was what's called um, eternal separation, mm-hmm. which is then you're you go to hell yeah. just to put it in terms you don't quit existing right you you, you know if, if a man dies will he live again the aunt job asked the answer is yes except you're where is it it's not if it's where yeah where are you going to live and and if you're separated from god by sin here you'll be separated from god for eternity That's so good. the consequences of adam and eve's sin mm-hmm. are horrific we see that sin not only produces death it produces guilt and shame which really all of these begin to be interconnected, but we see this kind of, this idea that Adam and Eve know they've done something wrong. They know they've broken some kind of law. So we can get, you know, sort of that that moral, sort of that courtroomy language that basically there was a law, there was a standard, and we transgressed it. We broke it. We went beyond it. And, and you can see that because they look down on themselves and notice that they're naked. And this is a picture of their innocence being gone, that they realized we are impure now. We, we need to cover ourselves. We need to hide who we truly are because of what we've done. And, and they're ashamed. They're running from God. They're trying to hide from the creator of the universe. Well, the, the holiness of God and their relationship with him was their covering. Mm-hmm. That was their covering. That there was, there was no shame in it because there was no sin. Shame is only associated with sin. Mm-hmm. Okay, and and so there was no sin, but once thus they could be open and transparent completely, and nothing to hide. Yep. See, there's a tremendous representation in in the fact that they didn't need clothes. It wasn't that just you know have this nude nudist colony. <laughs> it was it was that there was nothing to hide. Yeah. There was total transparency before God and for each other. When you're sinful. You hide things from each other. We, right. we and we we want to hide things from God, mm-hmm. and and they their covering was God. Mm-hmm. Once they sinned, the covering of God was removed off of them, mm. and then they had to make their own coverings. Which again, that's man's efforts of trying to atone for or cover his sins. We can't do it. That's good. It's inadequate. That's really good. Um, we know that sin damages our relationships with one another. So the moment it happens and God confronts Adam and Eve, Adam just blames it on Eve. So he's already like, you know, at her. She blames it on Satan. So there's a deviation of personal responsibility. You want to throw it on, you know, somebody else. And then we know from God's curse on Eve that, you know, she will be against her husband, uh, but he will rule over her. There's going to be a, a, a bad relationship between man and woman. There's going to be some tension. strife and struggle yeah. and tension. There. Yeah. Um, so we see that it damages our but, relationships. By the way, isn't it interesting, Evan, how nothing's changed in all these thousands of years that when we sin, we the first thing people do when they get caught, they want to blame somebody else. I mean, grown, Never their fault. grown people do that. It's mm-hmm. bad. With children will do it. But grown people do it all the time. That's right. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. We're always the victim. That's right. We're always the victim. It's yep. not my fault. And and 
Which is not the picture the Bible paints. No, and you got to own up. When you get right with God, you have to take responsibility. I Mm -hmm. am a sinner. It's my fault. Mm -hmm. God, I am in need of a Savior. That's right. It's not my brother my sister, but it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That's good. We see that um, humans are now born into sin and dominated by it. So they're born into a sinful state from Adam. And we see this most clearly in Cain and Abel. So so Cain and Abel are um, are Adam and Eve's children, and and they've born. They're born from sinful Adam and sinful Eve. And we see Adam and Eve when they're originally made. They're good. They're righteous. They're pure. Nothing crazy like that. Nothing, nothing crazy about sin. Sorry, I just lost my train of thought there. But now we see Cain and Abel born from sinful Adam and sinful Eve, and we see that the sinful condition transfers. And so Cain and Abel are out in the field one day. God has accepted Abel's sacrifice, his offering, his gift of his first fruits, but he was not pleased with Cain's offering, Cain's giving to God. And Cain is upset. He's angry. He's jealous of his brother that that. God accepted his gift. And so what does he do? He kills him. He murders him right there. And so we get this picture that humanity is corrupted by sin. We see it most clearly in the flood. We see that basically every thought, every intention of their heart was continually and always sinful. And God brings judgment on the earth. He even restarts with Noah. And once again, at the Tower of Babel, we get this picture that all of humanity is coming together to work sin, to work godlessness together. And so the, the point that we see here is that once sin enters the world, it corrupts humanity and it passes on forever. And we are all in need of salvation. No one is spared from uh, the, the sinfulness of our first parents. What's so interesting about Babel is that the flood had occurred and a lot of scholars think that they built the Tower of Babel not to reach heaven to try to reach God, but to reach heaven so that if God ever put a flood on the earth again, they could climb up the tower and escape the judgment. They couldn't, the mountains weren't high enough because the flood cut. So they wanted to build a tower so high that if God tried to judge them for their sin, they could escape. Wow, that's a good thought. And the thing is, we're still trying to do that. Mm. People think, oh, I, I can get out of it somehow, or mm-hmm. what can I do? But you can't. That's really sin, good. You, God will always find a way. The, mm-hmm. the, 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 the wages of sin is death. That's really good. And I think that kind of lays the foundation for uh, uh, a view of sin from the fall, from the beginning, from really the first nine chapters of the Bible. But now let's take a look at the Old Testament because now God is working through Israel, working through his people to bring redemption to the world, but he's obviously calling them to be holy. He's calling them to depart from their sin. And so the Old Testament in the way it talks, in its unique uh, systems and cultures, in the temple and the sacrificial system, all of these things actually gives us these really unique pictures of what sin is. And I know we've laid it out, but if you just kind of read the Bible through, what you'll notice is the Bible doesn't give you this kind of straight-up singular definition, textbook definition of sin. It gives you a lot of pictures and a lot of metaphors and a lot of things like that to 
paint a picture of what sin is. And so let's look at the various metaphors and pictures of what sin is, primarily in the Old Testament. So the primary metaphor for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, describes sin as a weight or as a burden. So Leviticus 10, 17 says, then Moses inquired carefully about the male goat of the sin offering, but it had already been burned up. He was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, Aaron's surviving sons, and asked, why didn't you eat the sin offering in the sanctuary area? For it is especially holy and is assigned it to you to take away the guilt of the community and make atonement before them. The idea here is that it is a weight, that it is a burden, that it's something that needs to be um, carried out and taken away. And so the priest who represents the people is carrying the iniquity, carrying the sin of Israel, and is walking away with it. We see on the, the Day of Atonement, the once year, once, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the once a year sacrifice where the high priest representing all of Israel, he places his hands on a goat and he confesses the sins of, the, of, of Israel. Then he releases the goat into the wilderness to carry the people's sins away. So the idea is that you're transferring sin from the people to the goat, and he's carrying this burden, carrying this guilt, this thing, he's carrying it away into the wilderness to eventually die and never be seen again. And that's why the, was it the writer of Hebrews says, let us go with Jesus outside of the camp. Mm-hmm, that's good. That scapegoat kind of concept that the sins were put on the scapegoat, then he was sent off and and uh, you'll see Jesus in all the answers to all these, He's by the way. He's crucified outside of the city. Outside of the city, yep. Mm, that's really, really good. He's a scapegoat in the sense that um, Barabbas is sent away. So for Barab- Barabbas's sin is, in a sense, placed on Jesus. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's really good. Um, this will be a little bit a little bit more familiar to you, to you. The Old Testament also speaks of sin in terms of a debt. Now, we're going to talk about guilt and legal metaphors in a sense, uh, in, in a second, but let's look at the term debt. So Leviticus 5 one says, when someone sins in any of these ways, if he has seen, heard, or known about something he has witnessed and did not respond to a public call to testify, he, rebel- he will bear his guilt or his debt. So Gary Anderson, a a scholar, gives a good explanation for the shift in metaphors. He says, the physical punishment of exile served as the means by which Israel raised hard currency to pay off the debt she owed. And so Mm -hmm. here's what I mean. The idea is that in that day, let's say I owe a massive debt, but I don't have a whole lot of money. I could sell myself into servitude, servitude and basically work off my debt as being Mm -hmm. a slave or being a servant. And so the idea of debt here is that sin has to be paid for by this servitude, this slavery, this exile, this whatever. And so when we see Israel um, first in Egypt, but then in Babylonian captivity and exile, that there's this idea that sin is a debt that has to be paid off. So it's being a slave to sin. In a sense, that has to be 
paid off. Has, or redeemed. Rede- yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And so in the, that's where we get the New Testament concept of redemption. Something is owed, and yeah. the only way to pay for it is to go into that. Exactly. That's correct. He, 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 Jesus said it came to give his life as a ransom mm. for many. That's really, really good. Yeah. That's so really you're, good. you're always going to see the correlation between that and Christ. We're going to keep doing that in this episode. And you get a picture even of the, the exile that there are people who are despised by the Babylonians, there are people who are looked down upon of no value or favor, and there are people being ruled over by the rulers. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus came and he was despised by the people, abhorred by the people, and he was a servant to the rulers. And mm-hmm. so in a way, he kind of embodies Israel's exile, that he has to do what, the, what Pontius Pilate says for him to do, and he's hated by his own people, and he's despised so much he's handed over to death. It's yeah. a picture of that that exile language. There you go. Um, so let's look now at the legal metaphors for sin, which is the idea of breaking a law, of a of committing a crime, and you know needing to do the time for the crime. So um, Hosea <laughs> twelve two says, "The Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds." So we see that legal language of the Lord is bringing a charge against Judah, that he's convicting him in the courtroom, bringing a charge, and then he's going to execute justice right on them for what, the, they, for what they've done. Yeah, and, and I heard a, a teacher teach one time, a very, very powerful man, very wise scholar, heaven is a courtroom. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how that God is the righteous judge and we stand before him in our sins and— um, and that we do stand before him guilty. And so there is that legal. That's not just something that that metaphor has deep rootedness in the very character of God. Mm. Um, even Job, when Job was suffering, would plead, read the book of Job, and you will, when you read Job's passages, when he speaks, he pleads, oh, that I could stand before God and plead mm-hmm. my case. He just wanted to stand before the judge. But our problem is he was pleading because of his tragedy in his life, we stand before God as sinners, yeah, and that's where Christ comes in and takes our punishment. We for have us. no case. Yeah. We have no argument for no. Our innocence. And Jesus comes and says, "I'll take their place and die in their place, mm. uh, and I'll be executed instead of them. Take them off a of death row and put me there. Give them my innocence, right? And I'm going to give them my innocence, transfer to them my innocence. It's powerful. That's very good. Um, the Old Testament also talks about sin as uncleanness or impurity. So Psalm 51.7 says, Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. And I think we get this picture not just in this psalm, but even in the Old Testament uh, uh, purity system where you know you can become ritually unclean by touching things like dead bodies and all kinds of other things there are clean foods and unclean foods, that what the Lord was doing was painting an earthly picture of a spiritual reality, which is that sin makes us impure or sin makes us unclean, and that there's a, a purification process that needs to go along with that. And and one of the great symbols, and, and, and we don't maybe we don't really stress it enough, but there may be a lot of people who are familiar with this, where the Bible said in the Old Testament that our, all our righteousness is as filthy, filthy rags. rags. Yeah. And I mean, I've got some really dirty, grimy rags in my garage that I keep just if I spill oil or if I'm working, changing the brakes, and I, I use them, and they're filthy. And he and that's, that's our righteousness. Mm-hmm. There is no, I mean, we're not. The, the point is, 
we don't have any righteousness. That's yeah. that's kind of the joke of that verse is all your righteousness is really not righteousness. Mm-hmm. It's nothing but dirty, filthy sin. That's right. That's really good. And that yeah, that and I think that really paints a picture of the heart that as we were talking about that all of humanity inherits this sinfulness. There's a sense in which your actual like actions make you impure, make you unclean, and then there's a sense in which you're born into this impurity. You're already born with this infection already there that needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. When my then three-year-old grandson lied, <laughs> I looked at your mom and I said, did you see that? Did you hear that? She said, yeah. And I said, that just shows you right there, three years old. Yep. Such a young, tiny, little, innocent age, but yet it's in that nature. Yeah, it's right there. It's there. And finally, we see sin described as a sickness. So the Septuagint, which is just the Greek translation of the Old Testament, I think we talked about this a few episodes ago. I don't remember what episode it was, but we talked about how the Septuagint took the Hebrew language and translated it into Greek. Yes, that's right. And that translation really sees sin in this way. So they translated certain words and certain passages to paint a picture of a very kind of sickness-oriented sin. So, for instance, in Deuteronomy 30, um, chapter 30, verse 3, it says, the Lord will heal your sins. And so there's a way in which we are sick with sins and we need to be healed, that we need to have a a, a balm, you know, talking about the balm in Gilead or, um, you know, by his stripes we are healed. healed. That's one I was thinking of. Because it's in the context he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, punishment that brought us peace was put on him, and by his stripes we are healed. Healed. And I do think that can apply to physical healing. I think within the atonement there's physical healing. I I don't have a problem with that. But I do think there's a spiritual healing. I think the spiritual is probably the primary. Primary and the healing is the secondary. It can be secondary. That's right. Uh, I've got some others to add. Can I add yeah, those in? Let's go for uh, it. There's also, and and our listeners may heard this that oftentimes sin is called missing the mark. Mm-hmm. Now that's not. It's actually that's not a real common uh, thing, but it's it's just a decision to fail when you miss the mark. Mm-hmm. It's that you see the target, but instead of hitting it, and I, and I read something that when you miss the right mark, you hit the wrong mark. Mm. That's good. Is that good? So yeah. that's sin. Uh, another biblical term is irreligion. So mm. it's being irreverent or unrighteous. Mm-hmm. Uh, a third one is transgressions. You mm-hmm. heard, you know, my transgressions. When you transgress, you cross over God's commandment, mm-hmm. which is what Adam and Eve did. Um, one of the biblical words is iniquity. That's good. And that one's real real popular. And iniquity really is a lack of integrity. Mm. It's deviating from the right path. That's what that means if you, you committed iniquity. You know which way you're supposed to go. You willingly go yeah. the, wrong, the wrong path. Um, rebellion, yeah. sin is rebellion. It's a failure to comply to God's law. Um, it's also known in the Bible as treachery. Ooh, Treachery, which that is— That seems like a pirate word or it, something. It does, <laughs> but it's to fall away from God's law. And if yeah. you notice, it keeps coming back to the law. Yeah, that's right. You're, you're, you're rebelling against the law. You're falling away against the law. Um, perversion mm-hmm. is another biblical concept of sin, which is a twisted and distorted nature and thinking process. I think that's really important because oftentimes sin takes a good thing and twists it or perverted, perverts yes. it. It says we believe in righteousness— but this is what righteousness really is. We believe in justice, twist and pervert it, but this is what justice really is. It takes these good concepts, promotes them, 
and twist them to something dark and evil. Yeah, I think that's exactly what Satan did in the garden. Mm -hmm. I think he was taking these concepts and he was twisting them. Um, There's one more, abomination. Yeah. And we don't hear that word a lot, but man, if that you ever read that in the Bible, I don't even know if that's in the because that's kind of like a King James. Is that in the New King James? I don't. Maybe they use it. I have to look it up. But an abomination was was an act that was reprehensible to God. Not that some sins aren't; Mm -hmm. all of them are. But abominations were at the bottom of the list, or should I say, the top of the list? They were the worst. (laughs) Yeah, on a scale of one to ten, they were they were the worst of the worst. And and so, so the point is, the Bible says a lot That's about right. sin and mm-hmm. and describing sin, and um, and ultimately, you know, the next thing is if you've got sin, then you have the consequences of sin. That's right. And we see that the Old Testament gives us a a pretty unique, pretty interesting view of sin and its consequences. So sin always carries a negative consequence. Now, in earlier Hebrew religion, sin is connected with very this-worldly suffering. So like you talked about, Job is basically like the oldest kind of story that we have, obviously past Adam and Eve and that, that, you know, those folks back there. Right, but as the patriarchs. That's right. It's one of the oldest stories in the Bible. And, and if you read that book, it's all about his worldly suffering and the idea from his friends is, Job, you've sinned, therefore, this is happening to yeah, you as You're punishment. suffering because you've done something. Confess what you've done, Job. If you just confess what you've done, then Job's saying, go away. I haven't done anything wrong. And that's, that's right. the whole book of Job. And, and that's why you want to stay before God, please, case to God, I haven't done anything wrong. That's why right. is this happening to me? But you're right. There was a concept that, that which was a wrong concept, yeah. by the way. And and as it develops and as time goes on, especially in the intertestamental period, but even before that. Which is between the Old Testament and those 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's correct. We see the idea that sin carries with it not just a worldly suffering, but even uh, eternal consequences. So, and you'll see this in the Bible in the New Testament. Um, there's the idea that that's developed that those who die and who are righteous go into what's called Abraham's bosom. And then those who are sinners go into a place of darkness and shadow. And so if you'll think about the story Jesus told about the uh, rich man rich and Lazarus, man and Lazarus yeah. the Lazarus goes into Abraham's bosom because, you know, Abraham is, you know, talking or, or he mentions Abraham. And then the man is in suffering and torment, the rich man. And so we see kind of these two Hades. Hades. And they actually, correct. the Hebrews, the Jews had a concept of upper Hades and lower Hades or upper Sheol and lower Sheol because mm-hmm. Sheol is the Hebrew. Hades is the Greek, both the same places. And Abraham's bosom was upper Hades or upper a place of comfort. That's correct. And lower Sheol or lower Hades was a place of torment. And, and we want to be clear too, it, the Old Testament is not silent on this uh, view of eternity. So let's look at Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. He says this, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Right. So that, the idea of eternal life, uh, you know, either to salvation or damnation is not foreign to the Old Testament. We see it just become clearer and clearer later on. Um, uh, well, and I'm going to interject here, yeah. Evan, too. I, I just, some notes I made, um, and we've already talked about one, but but maybe more of a, maybe, you know, I'm real systematic. I like but when you talk about the consequences of sin, ultimately, you know, what you said, you're kind of given that background of what the Bible says. 
But when you look at the scriptures, there's there are consequences to sin, and by no means is all of them. Because if you get in the if you get in the particular sin, there are going to be consequences. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if you if you sleep with your boyfriend or girlfriend uh, and have sex, and then she gets pregnant, okay, there you go. It's a natural consequence. There's a natural consequence of your sin, or if you get an STD or, or whatever. You know, you lie and get caught and get fired at work, or you get caught embezzling or stealing things. Then okay, see, so there's con- but these are kind of the consequences that go from a spiritual. There's there's an agitation or a restlessness mm-hmm. when you sin. You're restless. You're agitated. Your spirit. There's no peace. Mm-hmm. That's one consequence. Another is that it, it results in evil or badness. Mm. I mean, sin. It's not like sinful acts are uh, neutral. But they work in you. Sin is at work. The Bible says sin is at work in you. Yeah. And it makes you a bad person. You say, well, I'm not a bad person. Well, you may not think you're a bad person, but there's badness in you. There's evil in you. And the problem is the more you sin, the more it compounds, the more it infects your life. Yeah, like a cancer. Like look at King David. After Bathsheba, his his actual life and family go downhill. Yeah, that, that was a bad consequence. It, it was, and then there's guilt, mm-hmm. um, and I would add to that shame. Yep. Okay. Uh, trouble. Don't talk about that. But usually, when you sin, there's trouble. I mean, look what happened to Eve. Yep. There's trouble. Adam, trouble. Uh, and Cain, he was pushed out of all of humanity. A mark put on him. Um, David, like you just said, mm-hmm. trouble. So yeah. that's kind of what you're talking about. And then finally, death. That's right. So just kind of some things that you see in the scriptures that. Man, sin will mess you up. It sure will. <laughs> it's no good. <laughs> I teach our students, uh, you know, today's culture is all about acknowledging your inward desire and your feelings, and whatever you feel must be true. It must be who you are. And I said, look, guys, like, whatever you feel isn't the real you. Because if you act on every feeling and urge you get, you're going to be in a world of trouble. It may be dead. If you acted <laughs> on every ounce of hatred, anger, uh, jealousy, covetousness, the desire to lie, whatever, you're going to have no friends. Nobody's going to like you. You're going to have done some horrible stuff, and you may be in prison or in jail. That's like, right. Just because you feel it does not make it good because there are consequences. And the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things, yep. and the heart is the seat of your emotions, your feelings. That's right. Can't trust your feelings. If you want to just like Old Testament treatment of sin, literally go read that whole book of Jeremiah, which you just quoted. The whole thing is about the deceitful heart all the way through. Well, here's some good news that all those sin has corrupted everybody, makes us guilty, separates us from God, has terrible consequences. Here's some good news. God desires forgiveness of our sins and restoration to him. And so this is seen in the various purification rituals, the sacrifices, like the Day of Atonement, all of those things. And it's revealed in the prophetic books about Israel's future hope of forgiveness and restoration. That Israel in the book of Isaiah and in Jeremiah is painted as this sinful, dark, broken people time and time and time and time again. And yet God is speaking about their restoration. And so Ezekiel is writing in the midst of Babylonian captivity. I mean, the height of Israel's sin and consequences. And in uh, chapter 18, verse 23, God says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? 
This is the declaration of the Lord God. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and lives. God desires not for the death of the wicked, but for them to turn their way and live. Yeah, and we use this all the time, and and it's good. It's really good, and it's simple, but the simple things are the things that help us to know God hates sin, but he loves sinners. That's right. We were made in his image. He loved, for God so loved the world. He loves people. He loves the vilest sinner, but he despises and abhors and detests to the nth degree our sin. Yeah. And he won't tolerate it, and he won't put up with it, and he being righteous and holy, because he's not only a God who is loved, but he's a God who is holy— he he has to deal with it. He has to punish it. It's it's his nature. If he does anything different, he won't be God. And so there is within that God that hatred of our sin, but un, unbelievable love. And I think that's what Ezekiel is here. What we're reading there, God does not want to see us. Die. You know, God God commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? Because right. he's a control freak. No, because he doesn't want us to spend eternity away from him. And that's why he's the propitiation, not just for our sin, but for the sins of the whole sins world. Sins of the whole world. Says. Jesus is the meteor between God and man. That's that means correct. every man. Yep. So, um, you know, the, the Peter said, God is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, not willing that any should perish. It's mm-hmm. kind of almost saying the same thing that you just read in Ezekiel. That's right. Not willing that any should perish. Mm-hmm. Well, doesn't God want all the serial killers and the pedophiles and the rapists? Doesn't he want them? No, he He doesn't want anybody to spend eternity in hell. That's correct. But he wants all to come to repentance. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, what, is that going to happen? No, because people are stubborn and rebellious and, and they make their decisions. That's but right. But the heartbeat of God is to save them all, but mm-hmm. we have to come. That's right. Which brings us to Jesus in the New Testament. That's right. Let's let's look at what the New Testament says. Let's start with the Gospels, and then we'll take a super quick look at kind of the rest of the New Testament, and then we'll wrap up so that we can move into part two in, a, in the next couple of weeks and re- really break down theologically uh, the historic view of sin and how that impacts a whole lot of stuff. But let's look at New Testament narrative, the Gospels. So throughout Jesus's ministry, his healings are closely connected with the forgiveness of sin. So remember how we talked about um, how healing or sickness in the Old Testament was a picture of sin by his stripes we are healed? <clears throat> well, Jesus going around healing all of these people is really kind of a, a message of forgiveness, that if if sickness is the precursor to death, and death is the punishment or consequence for our sin or our guilt or our law-breaking, what does it say when God shows up and brings healing? He's come to forgive you. I know that we kind of went in a little circle there, but it's this message, I've come to remove the consequences of your sin because I've forgiven you. And we most clearly see this in the paralytic who's let down from the roof. He obviously can't walk. He's just let down from the roof, and the first thing Jesus says is, I forgive you. Sons, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And everybody's looking around like, who is this guy? How does he get to do this? And he's like, all right, which which one's easier? Well, he called him a blasphemer. Blasphemer. I just read that story. It's funny. Yesterday, I read that story, and he said, why does this man blaspheme? Only God, and they said this in their minds, only God can forgive sins. Mm. But Jesus perceived through the, knew the what they word, were thinking. through the word of knowledge, knew what they were thinking. Which is easier to do: heal somebody's body or forgive them of their sins. And when, and it's a trick question because for you <laughs> and for me, they're both. <laughs> but if you're the son of God, they're they're both as easy. Just both as both of them are easy. Yeah, both of them are possible for you and me. Yeah. It's impossible. But if you're the God, That's right. And so He wanted to show them just so you can see 
because they said only God can forgive sins. Well, okay, only God can heal a paralytic too, so let me just show you. That was a God moment. What Jesus is doing in the physical is very similar to what he's doing in the spiritual in that young man's life. Well, even the lepers, you know, lepers yeah. is leprosy is always kind of a type of sin. That's right. But yet Jesus would, it's interesting, the Bible says he cleansed the lepers. Mm-hmm. And I think that's significant. That's really good. We see in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus expands sin to be the activity of the mind and the heart. So he, Jesus tells us that to even lust after someone else is a sin. Mm-hmm. Now, we see this in the Ten Commandments, do not covet, but this idea had really become lost, and it really had become looking at it's just sin is only what I do, not what I think. Or not feel. My, or feel my desires yeah. and my heart. Or my disposition. That's correct, yeah. And Jesus is basically saying, look, it's not enough for you to just not cheat on your wife. You can't want to cheat on your wife. Right. That is sin. That is breaking God's law, his desire. It's not being conformed to his character, and I've come to change you. Um, Jesus preaches repentance, and yet he shares fellowship with sinners. He isn't calling for their immediate destruction, but for their restoration. And so Jesus came. He says, I didn't come to condemn sinners. I, I, you know, I, I came to bring salvation. I came to bring life. That, that's his whole deal. Now, it doesn't mean that in the end he won't bring judgment, but God desperately desires, like we said, for us to turn and come to life. He, he calls Matthew, the tax collector, to follow him. Matthew mm-hmm. gives a meal, and there's all these sinful people come in, and they want to hang out with this rabbi. It's wild. Yep. This, the most righteous person that's ever existed, the Son of God, and they want to be in the room with him, and the Pharisees can't get this. And, and then he said to him, you know, the physician, you don't call a physician for the people that are well, you call a physician for the sick. Sick, there's that. And yeah. he said, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's right. So God says, I'm, I'm going to reach out to you and have a relationship with you. That's what Jesus was doing, building relationships, but at the same time, never condoning their sin, mm-hmm. but by his sheer presence, condemning their sin, but but loving them. And that's it gets back to where I said the little phrase, God loves us, but he hates our sin. It's just evident in Jesus and what he did with hanging out with sinners um, to say to you, I want to relate to you. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, he would preach, repent all the time. Repent, turn Mm -hmm. from your sins, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Unless you likewise repent, you shall all perish. That's right. So he. it's not like Jesus was this loving it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I know I don't know if this is that critical theory stuff that's out there, but more and more you get people who are trying to paint Jesus as a social justice warrior and they paint all these wrong pictures of him. He was not. He was the son of God who was the perfect balance of grace and truth. Mm-hmm. So he's going to tell you the truth. He's going to say this is where your sin is wrong, your life is wrong, you're going to hell. But he would turn around and say, but here's grace. God loves you. I love you. And there's a way for you to be saved, and you can have a relationship with me. That's right. And I want you to think about this, too. Everyone, and including everyone now, was in the dark. God came to them, not them running to God. The Son of God became a man to chase after them, to be the light to the nations, to be the light of the world. He came to to, to be the light that shines on every man, as John says. He's the light of the world. Exactly. He took the initiative. He took the initiative. And he still takes the initiative. That's right. Yeah. Um, And finally, just to conclude with the Gospels, Jesus offers himself up to death and to resurrection as a sacrificial offering and to defeat our sin. He, He bears our sin like we were talking about. He identifies as a sinner, as a criminal, as guilty, 
though he never sinned once, so that we could identify and receive the benefits of him being perfectly righteous in the Son of God. He takes all that we are so that we can take all that he is. Yeah. He's perfect, the perfect Savior for Son us. of God became man so that men might become sons of God. That's right. And and I love, it's a saying we use all the time, but thank God it's true. He conquered sin yep. and death. That's right. And it's true. It's the heart of the gospel. And finally, we'll conclude with this, and we can just touch on this real quick because we're really going to hit on the next episode um, so much de- deeper. Let me just read this quote real quick. So we've painted this grand picture of what the Old Testament says about sin and seen those themes kind of run through the Gospels. Listen to this quote by J. Jordan Henderson from the Lexham Bible Dictionary. He says this, Sin is seen as a burden, but one that has been borne by Christ. It is a debt but one that has been paid by Christ. It is an offense, but one that has been removed by Christ. It is an illness, but one that can be healed by Christ. It is defiling, but one can be made pure through Christ. That is awesome. Isn't that so good? I mean, that's the gospel right there. Yeah, that's really rich. I love that. That Jesus (laughs) is your Savior through and through. Whatever you need— Whatever picture or metaphor you want to use for sin, Jesus is the antidote. Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the one who can bring you from death to life no matter what sin tries to throw at you. And that's the picture that the New Testament epistles paint for us. It's just Paul recognizing the saving work of Jesus and applying it in every area of our lives. Yeah, thank God for Jesus. He is the solution to sin, his blood, his death. The sin problem has been conquered. That's good. Uh, If we just had the doctrine of sin, it'd be a miserable existence. Mm -hmm. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you're going to die and go to hell. But the doctrine of sin is overwhelmed by the doctrine of salvation, Mm -hmm. that there is a Savior. Uh, And, you know, it's January, but we just celebrated Christmas last month, and that's why he came. Mm -hmm. Call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. That's good. Yeah. Well, look, thank you so much for joining us today. Be sure to join us for part two in the next couple of weeks. Go ahead and rate us, give us a like, subscribe, all of those good things. Send this to somebody who needs it, and we'll see you back in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm.